Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And it seems like Van Gogh has been in the news kind of a lot lately, but when I thought about it, I realized Van Gogh is always in the news, isn't he? He is, in fact. You'll see something about his latest record-breaking sale or show, his hidden works, like paintings that are revealed under paintings through x-rays. And I love those because it's like there's seriously a secret hidden painting underneath another Van Gogh. And then sometimes there's news about frauds, too, and that's always kind of exciting in its own weird way. But Van Gogh news isn't always all about art. Sometimes it's about the man, and that's partly because the man is what we've come to see as the epitome of the tortured artist, almost, even though we've talked about some other, I think, really strong contenders on this podcast, like Caravaggio and Michelangelo. But Van Gogh just has this really compelling life, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that there are so many opposites involved in in what he did and who he was. He was an immensely talented artist, but almost totally unrecognized in his own lifetime. He was an incredibly warm person, but also mentally unstable and alcoholic. He was a devoted letter writer, but also the kind of guy who cuts off his own ear, wraps it up like a present, and gives it as a Christmas gift to a prostitute. We're going to talk about that kind it's of a kind lot of like more a letter <laughs> delivering something. It, it sends a message. I am sure about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's just got so much going on. He's He makes a really interesting figure. So it's not too surprising that people are still analyzing Van Gogh's health, his mental state, and even his cause of death, which was long believed to be suicide. And... They're coming up with new ideas all the time. So we'll talk about the man and his art, but we'll also talk about some of the more recent theories about his life, as well as the high-tech advancements in studying his paintings. And just a note, too, before we go any further, you can tell by now we're going to say Van Gogh, which is the standard American pronunciation. I think the Brits have a different way they say it. Uh, y'all don't want to hear us try to say Van Gogh or <laughs> however it goes. I don't think yeah. our throats could... I mean, you might find us. it amusing, but... <laughs> We would just be sad when you wrote us and made fun of us. So we're just going to go with what we know. Van Gogh. So Vincent Van Gogh was born in Zundert in the Netherlands, March 30th, 1853. And his father was a Dutch reform minister. His mother was a bookseller's daughter. And after Vincent was born, they had five more kids. And the one to really remember is his younger brother, Theo. He turns out to be one of the most important figures in Vincent's life. And young Vincent was a pretty quiet kid who liked nature. He'd often go out walking and wandering, but it was clear that he'd eventually go into one of the family businesses, religion or art. So at 16, he was apprenticed to his art dealer uncle, who worked at the Hague branch of a well-respected dealership. And it was a good job. And Van Gogh, eventually located in London, learned about the Dutch masters like Rembrandt and the contemporary French artists that were selling big at the time, people like Jean-Francois Millet. And he also grew to love British literature and Victorian culture, tastes that really stuck with him throughout his life. But after working in London for two years and Paris for another... 
Van Gogh was really ready to get out of the business. He'd suffered his first mental breakdown over an unrequited British love at this point, and the work of art dealing just really didn't suit him. So he started job hopping, as as many 20-somethings do. First, he was a teacher in England. By 1877, he was a bookseller back in the Netherlands. Then he decided to study theology, but quit that in 1878 to go train as an evangelist in Brussels. He eventually left that to become a missionary in southwest Belgium and was kind of into it, but he was actually so into it and so moved by the uh, poor, impoverished people who he worked with and who surrounded him that he gave up all of his worldly possessions. And the church thought that was taking things way, way too far and dismissed him from his position. Vincent later told an acquaintance, quote, they think I'm a madman because I wanted to be a true Christian. They turned me out like a dog saying that I was causing a scandal. So what's this guy going to do? He's not going to be in the art business. He's not going to be a preacher or a missionary. What gives? Well, his brother Theo, who at that point was also an art dealer, had a few ideas about that. Van Gogh was 27, and Theo encouraged him to become an artist himself. He likes art, he's good at it, and so maybe it will suit his personality a little better than being a businessman or a preacher. And as much as Van Gogh's later works seem to be entirely natural, like they were just kind of dashed off in a minute, he sets off in his art career quite seriously. He plans at first to master black and white drawing, figures and correct perspective, and then he copies prints, he studies drawing manuals, he studied drawing at Brussels Academy, though he left after a short time. And then in 1881, he decided he needed some formal training, and so he took lessons from his cousin, Anton Mauve, a respected Dutch landscape painter. And his art dealer uncle even commissioned a couple drawings from him. So things seemed to be ramping up a little bit with yeah. his new career. He was learning a trade. And in 1882, Van Gogh made the jump to oil paints, moving in 1883 to a quiet Netherlands village where he could paint landscapes. You know, he still does like nature, just like he did when he was a kid. He could can paint peasants there, you know, just these bucolic sort of scenes. And when he came home to his parents' home, which by that point was in Noonan in the Netherlands, he focused even more on these portraits of peasants. During the winter he lived with them, he did more than 40 studies of peasants' heads. And I encourage you guys to go and look up some of these if you're, I mean, I'm sure you are familiar with Van Gogh. Everybody is. But you might be a little surprised if you're not familiar with his early works. They're very dark brown and dark green and just sort of almost muddy colors. And one of the more famous works from this period called The Potato Eaters is a pretty good place to start, I'd say, for for getting a sense of this dark, very unlike Van Gogh, Van Gogh style. Yeah, you guys should really go check out some of these pictures. Sarah printed out some for me and they were a big help while researching. So Van Gogh left again in 1885 to study at Antwerp Academy, mainly so he could see many of Peter Paul Rubens' works. But he stayed there only three months before taking off for Paris, where Theo was living at the time. And this is where Van Gogh really started to become Van Gogh. He saw the work of the Impressionists in person. He saw Japanese prints. He met contemporaries like Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and Paul Gauguin. And Theo set him up with some art world personalities, too. He got to meet Camille Pizarro and George Seurat. And Van Gogh's paintings really started to incorporate a lot of what he was seeing. So, for instance, the broken brushwork of Impressionism, sometimes the 
dots of pointillism and just this really bright, bright color and light, the kind of things that we associate with him today. One great example from this period is self-portrait with a straw hat. I printed out that one, too. And it just looks completely different from self-portraits that he was doing just a year before in Paris. Like, you would just think a, a completely different person did it if it was not obviously a portrait of the same man. And ironically, self-portrait with a straw hat is done on the back of one of those peasant head drawings. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, too, Van Gogh's frugal nature. But this is where he he came into his own. But after two years in Paris, he was ready to be in the countryside again. So he left for Arla, which is in southwest France, in February 1888. And all of that Paris exposure to color and a lighter palette just turns to magic in bright, sunny Provence. Van Gogh paints blooming fruit trees, fields, cottages, and locals like the postman Joseph Roulon and his family. And he's clearly inspired by the Japanese prince. He did 14 paintings of orchards in less than one month. And his technique just got even bolder from there. I mean, just to illustrate this, there's this great quote in the Encyclopedia Britannica article about Van Gogh. It goes, Once hesitant to diverge from the traditional techniques of painting he worked so hard to master, he now gave free rein to his individuality and began squeezing his tubes of oil paint directly on the canvas. But I I love that image, too. I mean, just to stop and talk about that for a minute. I'm imagining Van Gogh out of Paris. You know, he's just mastered it. He's got all the technique down and going for it one day, you know, painting an orchard or whatever and just squeezing the tube right out onto the onto the canvas. It, it sounds fun. It does sound fun. It sounds like sort of letting go of, of conventions almost. But it wasn't all fun and games. Van Gogh had the special hope when he came to Arla. He wanted to start an artist commune, the Studio of the South, where peers like Gauguin and Toulouse-Lautrec could come and live together and paint. So he rented a studio called the Yellow House, and he ultimately wrote to Theo so much about when Gauguin comes that Theo ended up advancing Gauguin the money for future pieces of unsold art, essentially paying him to go live with his brother. So Paul Gauguin does not really seem like the kind of guy you would want to pay to go live with your sibling. He seems like a pretty unlikely choice for somebody as upbeat and enthusiastic and sometimes seriously depressed as Van Gogh was to choose as a housemate. Just to give you a little background on Gauguin, he had abandoned his stockbroker career for art and had a reputation of being a bit of a brute. This is before the Tahiti phase, but still Van Gogh was really pumped about the idea of finally getting his artist commune off the ground and things went okay for a little more than a month with the two men producing works and getting along reasonably okay. Then trouble struck in a really big way. So it was Christmas 1888. And just to paint the scene a little bit. Van Gogh had been spending a lot of time reading the Christmas books of Charles Dickens, which if you have read um, probably the most famous of Dickens' Christmas books, you know that a lot of times they have to do with a guy who has a mental breakdown right around the holidays. and Not necessarily the most uplifting. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe if you go through the end, but you could eventually go off track, I think, if you read too many of them. He was also spending a lot of time hanging out with Gauguin. So on Christmas Eve, Arla police found Van Gogh bleeding from his self-bandaged head in the yellow house. And that left some questions about what on earth happened. 
So as the traditional tale goes, the night before, Van Gogh had been talking nonstop to Gauguin, who couldn't take it anymore and left the house. So when Gauguin heard his name in the street, he turned around to find Van Gogh hollering and waving around a razor. Van Gogh didn't attack Gauguin. Instead, he went home, cut off his ear, and gave it as a gift to a local prostitute named Rachel, telling her, quote, guard this object carefully. She passed out when she opened it. As many people would, I think. So Gauguin was interviewed by the police about the whole thing. And he told them that Van Gogh must have done this to himself. And after all the formalities were over, Gauguin sent a telegram to Theo saying you need to get down here immediately and then got out of Dodge. He left for Paris and did not come back. But a couple years ago, another theory emerged. According to Hans Kaufmann and Rita Vildegans, who are art historians and who wrote Van Gogh's ear, Paul Gauguin and the Pact of Silence, Gauguin cut off Van Gogh's ear with not a razor, but a sword. And then the two guys decided to keep the whole thing secret. Pretty wild twist to the story. Yeah, and Adam Gopnik actually wrote a great piece on the ear mystery for The New Yorker in 2010. And he set the scene in his article by noting two important facts that we should point out. For one thing, Van Gogh, despite the lovable nature that comes across in his correspondence, would have been, quote, exhausting to live with. And I can kind of understand that, too. Uh, all of Van Gogh's correspondence is online, and that's also very neat to go look at in addition to looking at pictures of his paintings. But he sounds really, really nice. But if you were with him all the time, that could definitely get old. I mean, he describes how the sky looks when he's going out on a walk and how the trees look. And it sounds lovely in a letter, but maybe if you were living in the yellow house with him, it would get kind of old. It would be too much. Maybe. Well, the other point that Gopnik made was that Gauguin, in addition to being pretty mean and scary, was a fantastic fencer who definitely carried a foil around in Arlo when he was going out at night. Felt self-defense. So Kaufman and Vildegans theorized that when Van Gogh came near Gauguin on the street, shouting and waving a razor, Gauguin attacked with the sword, accidentally slicing off part of Van Gogh's ear. Van Gogh then picked the bit up, and the two agreed to an unspoken code of silence. And there's some potential evidence out there for this, right? Yeah, there seems to be. So one is that the wound was clean. It was a slice. And let's not imagine too much what it would take with a razor in your own ear, but it does not seem like it would be a clean job. And then another factor to consider is that people who self-mutilate, sometimes now called Van Gogh syndrome, ironically enough, usually go for their arms and their hands and their legs and their chest, not their ears. Although, again, uh, Gopnik pointed out that Van Gogh would have had a better understanding of his ears than most people um, since he had painted himself so many times already by this point. Another piece of potential evidence, the guys write these weird hint, hint sort of things to each other. For example, after Van Gogh is sufficiently recovered, he writes to Gauguin that he'll shortly be returning his left behind fencing equipment. He says, quote, I'll pluck up the courage in a few days. Those terrible engines of war will wait until then. I now write to you very calmly, but I haven't yet been able to pack up all the rest. Hmm. And the two even have this code word of sorts, ictus, which means fish, if you know, like ichthyology or something. But it also relates to fencing, meaning a blow or a hit. And Gauguin kind of obsessively writes ictus in relation to Van Gogh's name, even placing it inside of this little 
ear-like squiggle doodle drawing. So <laughs> some sort of strange factors to consider here. And Van Gogh makes his own subtle allusions to other people, too, not just like these two have a strange correspondence going on. To his brother, he writes, Happily Gauguin, I, and other painters aren't yet armed with machine guns and other dangerous war weapons. Just swords and razors. I mean, seems like that might be bad enough. Right. So whatever happened, it majorly shook up Van Gogh. He went back to work quickly after leaving the hospital, but he had to go back in for nerves just a few weeks later. To go back to that Gopnik article, there's a quote that really illustrates the change that took place inside Van Gogh after that incident, a change that affected his whole outlook as an artist. The Christmas crisis had a real, if buried, effect on Van Gogh's imagination, turning him from a dream of living and working with a community of brother artists to one of painting for an unknown audience that might someday appear, a fantasy that was, in the end, and against the odds, not a fantasy at all. Yeah, so giving up on this idea of the artist commune and and living for the appreciation of his fellow artists, you know, all living in harmony together and making work and um, critiquing each other and that sort of thing. It doesn't work if you bring your swords. It does not work. Giving up on that and just making art for himself, accepting that or hoping that, you know, eventually somebody will be there to appreciate it, which, of course, I guess that is us now and everybody in the 20th century who got really into Van Gogh. But By April 1889, Van Gogh wasn't really recovered mentally from this attack, and he was fearful that another major nervous attack could permanently impede his work. He really didn't like these things setting him back that way. So he voluntarily entered an asylum at Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. And um, just a sad quote for you. Around this time, he wrote his sister, and this sort of gives you an idea of his state of mind when he is voluntarily committing himself to an asylum. He said, every day I take the remedy that the incomparable Dickens prescribes against suicide. It consists of a glass of wine, a piece of bread and cheese, and a pipe of tobacco. It isn't complicated, you'll tell me, and you don't think that my melancholy comes close to that place. However, at moments, ah, but. So Van Gogh spent 12 months in the asylum, and he sometimes had these nervous attacks, and then sometimes he was really productive. He produced 150 canvases, which, I mean, that sounds like a lot to me. And when he was first confined to the grounds, he painted what he could see. I mean, he liked to paint from life. So he would do uh, pictures of the walled garden, the irises and the lilacs in it. He would do copies of Delacroix and Rembrandt. And when he was finally allowed more freedom toward the, the end of his stay, he painted nearby wheat fields and cypress trees and olive trees. A lot of his most famous paintings are actually from this period where he is in the institution. He did portraits of his fellow patients. He did scenes inside the hospital. He even did The Starry Night at this time and thought that it was a failure, not at all what he was hoping it would be. The masterpiece that's hanging on so many college freshmen's walls. I mean, I was thinking the same thing. So finally, missing family and home, he left the asylum and moved to Auvers-Souvaz, outside of Paris. He put himself under the care of an artist-friendly homeopathic doctor, Paul Ferdinand Gaucher, and he got back to work with a vengeance. So two of, I think, your favorites from the period, Sarah, Thatch Cottages at Cordeville and the Church at Auvers, 
those were painted during that time. Yeah, I, I really like these ones. They they have a nice, I don't know, they're not quite as yellow and super bright as some of the paintings he did in the south of France, but they just have this really nice color. That thatched cottages one has a this pale green tone to almost the entire painting, which, I mean, I know that sounds weird, but it ends up being quite lovely. So he's, again, producing a lot of work. But then in July 1890, perhaps over guilt relating to his financial dependency on his brother or just um, another attack seizing him, he shot himself in the chest in a wheat field. And it took Van Gogh two days to die. So there was a lot of time to talk to people about what had happened. He spoke with the police. He met with Theo. And when the police first talked to him, he said, quote, I shot myself. I only hope I hadn't botched it. What I have done is nobody else's business. I'm free to do what I like with my own body. When he was examined by a doctor who said that the bullet couldn't be removed, he was asked if he had tried to commit suicide. Van Gogh responded, I believe so. Don't accuse anybody else, which sounds a little bit suspicious. It's on the one hand definitive and then, yeah, also kind of strange. It leaves it open, I guess, which makes way for new theories like this one that suggests that Van Gogh didn't really commit suicide, but was murdered. It's part of a biography by Gregory White Smith and Stephen Nafa. The authors suggest that two teens visiting for the summer accidentally shot Van Gogh and that he admitted suicide to protect them. Their reasons for thinking this are that, for one thing, the gun was never found, nor were Van Gogh's painting supplies. Also, the wheat field was a mile outside of town, which is really far to go if you're shot in the chest. Definitely. And then finally, one of the boys, René Secretin, admitted in 1956 that, yes, he and his brother had borrowed the gun from a or borrowed a gun from a local business owner. And yes, they also often bullied Van Gogh. They'd even send their girlfriends over to hit on kind of shy, awkward Vincent and um, really embarrass him. But they didn't admit to actually shooting Van Gogh, kind of an important distinction. In fact, um, this guy said that the artist stole the gun and the boys hadn't even been in town when the suicide took place. So there is kind of strange things going on here, but also not really definitive information. But according to a recent article in Art Info France, the Van Gogh Museum isn't changing its story, so they're not going along with, with the new theory quite yet. Leo Janssen, who's the curator at the museum, says, quote, We do agree with the authors that there are many unanswered questions regarding Van Gogh's death. It's just that at this point, we feel there's not enough evidence to prove the new interpretation, and therefore we find it's too early to abandon suicide as the cause of death. So who knows? I mean, maybe we'll get more information on this in the near future, we've learned that um, cold cases that are hundreds of years old can be solved sometimes. Very true. But what about his legacy? After his sunflower-filled funeral in Auvergne, Van Gogh finally started to become famous. 
It's a well-known saying that Van Gogh produced 900 paintings and 1,100 works on paper and only sold one painting in his lifetime. Only one article had been written about him. But that gives the false sense that Van Gogh was just completely unknown, which is not the case, right? No, people who could see his work did often like it. Guys like Monet and Gauguin and Pizarro thought that it was fantastic, thought that he was a really, really great artist. But his Fame hadn't spread yet. Word hadn't spread or taste for his work hadn't spread. So Theo, who was a successful art dealer, had been trying to promote his brother's work for years. I mean, in addition to supporting him financially, he was kind of his champion in the art world. He had absolute faith in him. And really, tragically, he died just a few months after Vincent and passed on that that faith in Vincent's work to his widow, Joanna, who had a baby son also named Vincent to support. So it's Joanna, also known as Joe for short, who really came to uh, to be the Van Gogh champion after his death. She called on her family and her husband's art contacts and started showing the pieces. She followed Theo's advice to keep the works together, to not just sell them off piece by piece to whoever came along looking. And I think this is a remarkable fact, but as late as 1906, she could still show a complete set of Van Gogh works. And his work influenced the German expressionists. His published correspondence gave folks all sorts of insight into his life and his technique. And they're really lovely. They're filled with sketches. They're poetic. They're incredibly friendly, as you said before. And as we've made quite clear, his life is perfect for research by professionals of all disciplines. Psychologists have tried to diagnose him. Some say that he had epilepsy. Some say schizophrenia. Some say that Vincent Theo and his sister may have all had an inherited metabolic disorder. Yeah, but there's also lots of modern research taking place around his work, so not just his life. Two of my favorite examples of this are really sort of sciencey, high-tech like. One is that there's a Cornell electrical engineering professor named C. Richard Johnson Jr. who has used computer algorithms to create weave density maps of Van Gogh's canvases. So the density of the thread patterns lets historians know if one painting was made from the same roll of canvas as another. So you could tell that um, a certain work is authentic because it was made right next to a known work, or maybe a certain work is a fraud because it doesn't match the density patterns at all. And then probably the most helpful thing here, it helps art historians place the paintings in the order they were made because they can tell, well, that canvas was right next to the other. He probably painted them around the same time. And according to a work published on Van Gogh and analytical chemistry, chemists figured out the reason why some of Van Gogh's brilliant chrome yellows have faded over the years. By using UV light and simulating the aging process of old paint, they found that chromium oxidized when it was mixed with a chemical ingredient often found in the white pigment lithopone. So they figured he must have stretched his yellow paint with white and unknowingly created a problem for conservators down the road. And I I thought that was such an interesting piece of news because it helped answer a question that I had had, which was, how did Van Gogh eat, pay his rent, live and buy what are usually pretty expensive supplies? I mean, oil paints and canvases, that's expensive stuff with no job. So Theo obviously supported him, contributed um, much of 
the money that Van Gogh used to live. But Van Gogh was clearly penny-pinching, too. So, like, painting over the old canvases, we mentioned that. Historians have figured that a huge number of Van Gogh's paintings probably do have other paintings underneath them. And then even going as far as to stretch his paint, I think it's it's interesting. It is. But considering all the support that Theo gave Vincent, it's probably appropriate that in 1914, Theo's remains were relocated to rest near Vincent's. So anyone stopping to pay respects to the artist can also visit the grave of his tireless supporter. I think that's so appropriate. Somebody who had just total faith in his in his family member and turned out to be right, even though neither of them got to see it, unfortunately. So uh, I had fun researching this, and for those of you who are interested in learning more, there's so much. I mean, obviously, go look at um, pictures, either in museums, of course, or online, but the trove of letters is so fun. I mean, I just looked at random ones, picking different letters to different correspondents from different time periods, and I think it really helped give me a better sense of what kind of person Van Gogh was. So I highly recommend that. And I also want to thank Rosie for suggesting this topic to us. It was a fun one. It definitely was. And if you have any more topics like this that you want to share with us, or maybe just you want to write in and share your favorite works of Van Gogh with us and let us know what your favorites are, you can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook or we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And we also have a load of art-related articles, how cubism works, how surrealism works, how Picasso works. We unfortunately don't have Van Gogh, not yet at least. So um, you can check out any of those, though. In the meantime, they are in the entertainment section, and you can find that by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.